This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome. I'm Matt Ryan, uh, Polythea Director and host of Script to Screen. You're here for the sixth season premiere, and we're really excited that we have All the Way tonight, uh, a week before the election, so we might have a few political statements to make tonight. Uh, our guest tonight has directed some amazing films like Austin Powers Trilogy. Austin Powers fans here? <laughs> Meet the Parents uh, and The Campaign. But he's also brought us some really important political films, bringing the politics and history to life. Uh, he did the film Recount about the actual fixed election not the, in 2000. Uh, he did the first celebrity presidential candidate movies with, about Sarah Palin and Game Change. And of course, he did Tonight. So, and then last year, uh, he was gracious enough to come to the Pollock Theater to show Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston about the Hollywood Blacklist. That was a very exciting night for us. So please welcome back to the Pollock Theater stage, director Jay Roach. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, given the uh, current political climate will drag on long past the 2016 presidential election, thank you for giving us a movie where a politician triumphs and actually passes legislation that makes a difference. Yeah, um, you would have thought that might have had a bigger impact on uh, evaluating the current candidates. Um, I was I was saying I was talking last night to a different group, uh, this group, really great group called Facing History in L.A., and that was one of the things that's the um, prevailing emotions. I got emotional watching this. It's been a while since I've seen it. It's just that I believe in the power of government to do good. And he believed in that. And he actually did so much good in the first few years. People forget about it because of Vietnam and Vietnam. And he, um, the, just the, the, his, his experience level meets meeting his, his agenda. And he passed all those, that incredible legislation. And I, I thought it would sort of remind people that experience in politics isn't all bad. <laughs> you know, that's actually, you can, especially if you're willing to work with people across the aisle, as he actually did. And that he took on all of that within his first few months of office and then within those three years passed all those bills, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, War on Poverty, uh, you know, some 60 bills on education, uh, you know, and even things like passing uh, this, the AFI, arts programs, so AFI, PBS, NPR, none of that existed before him. He got, he got all this stuff done that actually increased the quality of life for us, even to this day. So, um, yeah, it was, it's, that seemed relevant to this, <laughs> this campaign season. Um, but what I was saying in the talk last night is I, I thought recount would help discourage voter suppression. I thought game change would help, you know, uh, remind us that maybe fame obsessed candidates aren't, aren't the best idea. And I thought, I thought, uh, I thought all the way would remind you, yeah, it's people who believe in the power of government to do good and have years and years of experience doing it might be someone that you would want to have in, in leadership positions. <laughs> and sadly, uh, Lyndon Johnson thought racism would end. Like he, had, he thought this is finally we can break the barrier and it's not well, going to continue. He, yeah, he, at least he thought he could stop Jim Crow. I mean, it was so hard to even imagine, uh, you know, colored drinking fountains, segregated schools, uh, totally segregated public facilities and buses, all that stuff. It's, you know, he was he obviously was working with Mark, Dr. King and with incredible civil rights leaders. One, some of my favorite things that I discovered making the film were the grassroots civil rights leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer, the woman who... Uh, the sharecropper's daughter who uh, came to the convention, all those people, uh, the guy, um, spacing on his name, the guy from uh, the, uh, the David Dennis, who, who plays the guy who rallies the church, you know, after James Cheney's death. I mean, unbelievable heroes who nobody really knows anything about. So let's talk about, we talked, we did watch a little of the end of the movie together over there. Um, this was shot for HBO, but we're throwing you a theatrical audience. Yeah. How does that feel? And did you shoot it for a theatrical audience with that in mind? And I, just happened to show on HBO. I tried very much to treat it like I treat all of my films and all the films that we've done for HBO. They're, they really are films to me. They're made for television, but 
they're, we try to shoot them cinematically. I'm the most proud, actually, of the look of this movie than any movie I've ever done because we were inspired by this uh, fantastic still photographer who was always in the White House. Um, uh, we call him Oki. I, I can't remember his, the, whole, his, the way his, his name is pronounced, but he, he was known as Oki, and he was fantastic. And all those beautiful kind of forced composition shots... Uh, that we we show a few of in the end of the film um, inspired my cinematographer and I to look for compositions that were off balance sometimes, but for the right reasons to emphasize the Oval Office and the the sort of fishbowl feel of it and the the uh, it is the seat of power, but it's just a, a round office and but it it can seem very lonely at times at the very beginning of the film. So we I tried to um, shoot for an expressionistic uh, result that, that comes from what the, the sort of anxiety dream that LBJ... He was so happy to be president. He'd been trying to be president his whole life, but he gets thrust into it in the worst possible way. And so, you know, I thought of it as a little dreamier and, and uh, yeah, just what... And also, he's such a complicated psychology to make you feel like you're getting access to him psychologically, spiritually, intellectually, on every possible level. We had to shoot it more from the mind's eye camera view than uh, just a straight up look. Yeah, I found it fascinating when the opening, uh, first time he's in the Oval Office looking at JFK's kids. Yeah. Just like it's not his office. And the way yeah. you shot that was because it was dark and lonely. And Yeah, that's an interesting example of collaborating with a great actor. Brian obviously delivers the performance, you know, a national treasure kind of level performance in this. But he was, he's also a fantastic storyteller. And when we were rehearsing the scene, I brought him in early. We finished the set, you know, and I said, I have this idea of having you kind of wander in. And I don't think you should sit in the chair because I don't, I like the idea that he didn't feel like it was his yet. And he had the idea of walking along the outside and just stopping before he even got to the desk and leaning mm-hmm. against the wall. And that seems such a trivial thing in a certain way, but it was, to me, it, was, it just broke open how I saw the scene because he was that much of an, in a way, an outsider. You know, the Kennedy people hated him. All the Kennedy aides, everybody thought he, they called him Rufus Cornpone and they, <laughs> they uh, he, they saw him as a, a striver and a you know a person who was he, he tried to overreach a little bit as to get power for the vice presidency. He'd been he'd been a titan in the Senate. I mean, like uh, unbelievable uh, legislator in the Senate, and he had shrunken in, as a vice president. But he uh, he was bitter about that, and so it turned very bitter between him and the Kennedys. So he was he's you know he he went to a Texas teachers college. He wasn't an Ivy League guy. He was not. He was not one of the elite Yankees, and he was—he was just an outsider in every way. So anyway, John, Brian just had that instinct, and he played the character so long on stage that he just knew what was right, you know. And that was just in rehearsal. Just he's, you know, it's just a great choice, and I went with it. Yeah, it's interesting because I read in the play he writes a foreword and says, uh, "LBJ is King Lear, great in desire and accomplishment, and weak in despair and self-pity." Funny, threatening, warm, vindictive, sympathetic, and yeah. crude. Is that something yeah. for you where you were able, that's how you define the character? Like, is that how you just saw it? Yeah, I mean, he's, there's so, I forget, is it Moyers who said, uh, 11 of the most interesting people I ever met were Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, and I was just reading Carol's intro to the, the fourth book. If you've never read the Carol books, the fourth one is the best. I think I've read all four of them, but. Those biographies are among the greatest literature ever, you know, ever written about presidents. And um, he described them in the introduction. He, he, I think, was quoting somebody, but just the, the the Johnson treatment, which was that thing of leaning over someone and being, you know, half an inch from their face and, you know, flattering them, insulting them, you know, uh, blackmailing them. Uh, uh, you know, whatever, like all in the same conversation. And by the end, they were like, oh, okay, whatever you say. You know, like he was just so persuasive, which is how he got so much done. So that required, I don't think any, uh, you know, I, I don't know of another actor who could 
really pull that off. I, I started this, there's an interesting situation that occurred while we were shooting. I, I had the idea of Melissa Leo playing Lady Bird and I called the casting director and she said, yeah, we got a weird thing back that she can't do it for you because she's up for Lady Bird in, in Rob Reiner's film. <laughs> and he, there was a simultaneous LBJ movie being made exactly as we were shooting. We went for, um, uh, what's the guy's name, the actor? Um, not Richard, uh, the guy from uh, The Visitor and uh, Jenkins. We went for Richard Jenkins, Jenkins to yeah. play... Um, Senator Russell and he went on that other film we, fortunately we were lucky because we got Frank Langella but she, and we got her but that was a simultaneous film well the, who's playing LBJ Woody Harrelson from who had worked with me yeah. on so that film hasn't come out yet but <laughs> we'll see if uh, we'll see I, I kind of tried to warn Woody I said Woody Brian's got a pretty good a pretty good performance going I don't know if you want to be coming out the same year and he put it in his contract to come out a year after ours. Oh, and I'm sure it'll be great. He's Woody is an f- amazing actor, but that's Brian's. Brian's pretty substantial. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back in time a little. So you see the play. What what drew when you first saw the play? What drew you to say you know this would be? I'd well, I was working with um, Brian on Trumbo, and uh, I didn't know I was going to be up for the job when I first saw it. Um, and then we started prepping and. And then Spielberg and HBO called and said, would you consider doing this? I guess Stephen had thought about directing it. Maybe he'd never really said he was, but he had thought about it. And so I was like, I said yes instantaneously because I had seen the play and I, I love the character. And I, I mean, I, I love the history of Johnson. I, I grew up kind of being aware of him, but I'd only known, you know, the Vietnam Johnson because I was about 10 years old when he just chose not to run again. And uh, so, I, anyway, I just said yes for And then I thought, oh, man, I hope Trumbo goes well, because <laughs> I'll be committed to two Cranston movies, and if the first one goes poorly, it's going to be awkward. Um, so then I went back and saw the play, and uh, you know, which was you know, helpful for both films, really, because in both films, and they have this in common, he's playing theatrical characters, larger-than-life mm-hmm. characters, and the whole tr- dilemma was how big... In both films, how big can he play those and be still convincing? True to the guys, because they really were big, but if you were too true to them, it might seem so big that it wasn't believable. So we have to figure out you know, what to adjust and how to adjust. Uh, and he'd been playing LBJ on stage for so long and playing to 1,400 seats. You know, uh, we were, That was a, a lot of discussion about... How big can I be? <laughs> and so, overall, what, what were other challenges working? You had you had the rare thing of having the playwright do the teleplay. Yeah. What were the challenges of converting the initial thoughts? Like, how, what are we going to have to yeah. convert from play to screen? Well, one of the specific ones we were just talking about it was um, in the play. LBJ starts by addressing the audience and then addresses them again. I think at the beginning of the second act, and then again at the end of the, of the play, right to the audience. And Schenken had written and. and Robert wrote a beautiful adaptation. Much of what you see, he had pre-described, and we, you know, I obviously added some 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 of my own stuff into it. But it, it was really Robert just did a great job. But one thing that he'd written in was that he talks to the camera, um, much like Kevin Spacey talks to the camera in House of Cards. In the in Kevin's, you know, the, that character. Uh, what's the character's name in House of Cards? Frank. Underwood, yeah. He speaks to the camera, and, and he's the president in the last season or two, right? So I was like, I don't think we can have Brian Cranston <laughs> turn and talk to the camera, you know, uh, and be... I mean, people are going to say, oh, you, you realize House of Cards, and then not everyone has seen the play, and they would just... I don't know. I just didn't think it was going to work. So it was a lot of discussion about that, and uh, we had... I actually shot... The party w- doing it both ways, where him doing a little bit of talking to the camera, but I just had confidence that the voiceover internal monologue would be more consistent with that idea of the dreamy feel, especially walking down the hall. I really like the way it works when he walks down the halls of Congress and into the, into the, you know, into the floor to give that that speech, because he's talking about this dream and the the knives and all, you know, like just being under siege while he's becoming the president of the United States. It just seems like a beautiful counterpoint 
And I didn't think it would work if he was talking to the camera. So, um, you know, it was a very contentious debate for a long time. And, and everyone finally signed off on it. So we ended up shooting. Yeah, that was actually a great visual moment because all the senators and congressmen are smiling and applauding. Yeah. And he just knows that they're out for him. Yeah. Or don't yeah. know if he can handle he the job or deserve it. Yeah. He's surrounded by assassins. You know, he might literally, because JFK had just been assassinated, but he knew he was at least surrounded by political assassins and yeah it was it that was uh i could i just wanted people to relate to what he must have felt and what he then had to deliver and the fact that he then stood up and announced that he was going to take on civil rights the least likely cause for a man like that at that moment to take on uh that it was just a phenomenal moment and he truly unified the country after the most you know, a sort of divisive and traumatic experience uh, ever, you know, or many, 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 many years since the Civil War, maybe, you know, he had, it was a, it was a, it was a rough place to be. And he, he did this extraordinary thing of unifying the country over, uh, over civil rights. It was really amazing. And a lot of people, I don't think a lot of, I mean, today we have such a, you know, toxic political climate. I don't think people realized back in the 60s how adored JFK was. Oh, yeah. Even Republicans, Democrats, everybody looked up to him, his family, oh the kids, like the life. So it was... You know, I was, um, I was five years old when he was killed. And my parent, my dad's an ultra-conservative person, and he loved Kennedy. He loved him. And my mom was more, more Democrat and, she, you know, or more, more, uh, more liberal. And she cried for, you know, six straight days. I mean, we all, I remember staying home from school one day. I mean, people had the television on for three or four mm-hmm. straight days, eight hours a day, just watching all the funeral stuff. It was, it was so devastating. Uh, it was just the, it was, it was, ex- it was unbelievable. You know, it was just, so yeah, he, he walked into that and how, how grief, grief stricken and just gutted our nation was, you know, and somehow, you know, brought some sense of hope back into the situation. Which leads actually the first thing, because obviously the opening sequence, the visual of watching, you know, the hospital, the people yeah. crying, uh, obviously the play didn't have that kind of ability. Right. So is that one change? And also how difficult was that to shoot, given what you just said about how it impacted you? Well, it was, um, I knew how I wanted it to feel. Uh, Robert had described the shot, you know, the, the excuse me, the events. But I did the slow motion thing I added, and the sort of glidey thing of coming up to the car and seeing in the that I storyboarded and kind of uh, carefully thought through to to uh, just take us to that place, you know, um, uh, and try to imagine the sense of tragedy and just the surreality of it, um, and then again finding out that this thing he's fought to get his entire life. In Carol's book, it said at age six, he was talking about being president of the United States. You know, it was like he had, (laughs) the man had a a dream. And and now it's this nightmare, you know, and they're overlapped. So I knew it had to be both emotional, but also uh, as visually poetic, if you will, as it could be to try to go past the, just the date and the event and the whatever it had to, you had to feel what it might have felt like a little bit of it anyway. I was interested in the plane. He has a great moment where he says to his lady bird, uh, Jackie O's looking at me weird. Like I don't deserve the job. Yeah. And it was actually the first time I kind of self pity because he's like, he's not really, yeah. Lady bird's like, he, she just lost her husband. Well, I lost someone too. It's like, yeah, yeah. So is that something where you need that self pity to come out there? Well, He was, (laughs) you know, you got the feeling he was, it was oh man! Can you imagine? He the president of the United States is killed in his state. He's wanted the presidency. Everybody knows he's wanted the presidency. Um, they he know you. We talked about how Kennedy's distrusted him. He had some a series of faux pas on that plane that morning. Um, he what he had the story was he had gone into the stateroom where Kennedy and and Jackie had you know that was their bedroom you know, on the plane. Um, now it's his plane, but it's Jackie st- and, and John F. Kennedy's stuff are still in the bedroom. But he had laid down on the bed for just a moment to make all these phone calls to all to try to figure out what was going on. He he was, you know, so she walked in into the room. Here's him lying on their bed. And 
uh, I don't know, just like a whole series of really horrible, awkward things. And so because he, uh, he just knew the Kennedys didn't like him, he right away started calculating. And the whole thing of how he took the oath and he, there was a whole fight over whether he would take it on the plane or fly back to D.C. Mm-hmm. He called Bobby and asked, what should I do? He claims Bobby said, take it there. But then Bobby later, it was so complicated. It was so Shakespearean. And so he was instantly mm, paranoid, you know, and that's that paranoia and that 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 sense of this is how I get to be president. And now and he knew that she represented this this slain nobility. She was always going to be, you know, an elevated kind of uh, almost martyred figure in his life. I don't know. So yeah, it was really, it was complicated, but that's all Schenken. Schenken, Schenken was a, is a really, he's an artist, uh, Robert Schenken. He wrote The Kentucky Cycle, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and is, I didn't get to see that, but I read that recently, and it's, that's amazing. He's a fantastic, and he wrote, uh, um, is it called Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge? Ridge yeah. the new, uh, uh, which uh, is coming out Friday, so tell your friends. On, uh, is actually the reason he was actually wanted to join us tonight. But he's right. in New York at the he's premiere of the, the Axel Ridge. So he does pass along his uh, thank you. Yeah, for but coming. he's someone to keep an eye on. He's a really, really amazing writer. Uh, you also, I mean, LBJ had a great sense of humor. One of the, the best moment for me was when he was looking like he's drunk driving, driving to the lake with a <laughs> VP. I just had to, you know, so what, how do you handle something like that? Because it's funny. It's 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 also him trying to exert control over yeah. Humphrey. How do you balance like levity well, versus comedy? That was it. I mean, uh, Schenken wrote that in. He was asked to kind of open it up, make it more cinematic, and but it earns itself because it's true. Uh, it's a true. Uh, he, I don't think he he may not have done that with Humphrey, but he did it with multiple people uh, as a prank. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the you know who was just a young aide at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, who then became a historian, writing her first book was about her experience with Johnson and about Johnson. Now she's obviously one of the most famous historians. But she told the story of how he would drink you know, uh, whiskey while he's driving, uh, and you wouldn't know that it was an amphibious car, and he would just drive off into the lake and, <laughs> you know, and not tell you, and you would think you were going to die and, dr- and drown, and he would uh, pretend he lost the brakes, you know, and she told us that that wasn't in the original script because the no brakes thing, uh, but she said that's how he would do it, and so you kind of fell for it, and then after he got you off balance, he would start, you know, when he did it with, with uh, legislators or, or lobbyists or whatever, he would, he would get them off balance with pranks. And he did this on every level all the time when he would use humor to throw people, to break the ice and, and uh, lower their defenses. Um, so it seemed like a really great thing to do to Humphrey, um, you know, and, but it was, it was, I think it's humorous partly because it's so plausible given who he is you know if it was if it was a different kind of guy who wasn't such a prankster and didn't use it to then open up this big important conversation it might have been it's interesting because Humphrey uh the relationship I was curious how you work with the actors on this because LBJ needed him you know and in many ways respected him but demeaned him in a lot more in even ways other people how did you work with the two actors on that one to develop that balance well Bradley you know, Bradley found a lot of that vibe that Humphrey, but it was in this, again, it was in the great script, but it's in, it's in the books too that Humphrey was a solid uh, crusader for, or crusader is probably not a good word for it, but a, a, um, he was a champion for civil rights. From 1948, he gave this incredible speech. It actually kind of made him, it brought him to focus on the national stage because he made this impassioned uh, speech about civil rights in, at a convention in 48. And was a strong, you know, but much like Johnson, when he was asked, when he was up for VP, he started um, having to kind of kiss LBJ's ass a little bit. And then, you know, and then LBJ took complete advantage of that and actually did string him out just exactly as we showed it. He didn't tell him until the convention that he was going to be, that he actually finally decided to be. And he constantly dangled and then pulled it away, dangled, pulled it away to get Humphrey to work harder for him. So, it, but Bradley found this kind of, you know, can-do thing to then add to the, to the, um, the somewhat 
a, you know, victim of abuse thing. And he, I, I love what, and I've never seen Bradley transform in any role he's done. He's himself usually in his films, you know, and it was so enjoyable to work with him on the makeup, on the, the accent and the vibe. But, but that was the biggest thing is, is it just going to become pathetic? You know, is it going to become uh, whatever? And I, it is, but it, in a tragic way, I think, more than... And then you, he is kind of the soul at stake in a way. He's the Johnson doesn't really change throughout the film, but Humphrey slowly and slowly sells more of his soul until he's actually kind of um, involuntarily and, and with objection complicit in the Vietnam decisions, which are happening. You know, They're beginning to happen, that he's stepping deeper and deeper into a situation where he's going to have to start sending a lot of men to fight, you know, and that's, yeah, so that, that, I love that story. It's actually really important. Uh, so you, you, it's not that you already have a lot of larger life characters, so you're throwing another one in, MLK, Martin yeah. Luther King. So what did you work with Anthony uh, Mackie, and did, did he bring anything in the role that surprised you? Yes, he did, and it was the most daunting casting choice of the whole process. We had Brian, we, we struggled over, uh, Frank, I mean, uh, um, uh, Senator Russell for the longest time because we needed someone to pull that off. I mean, you know, we didn't get Richard Jenkins, and I actually didn't have anybody until the last minute Frank became available, and then I was like, oh, this is the best ever. I can't believe how well that turned out. But Martin Luther King was, I was really scared uh, because of Selma, partly. It had just come out. Um, there had been a lot of criticism of how LBJ was portrayed, which I, th- I personally thought was not particularly fair. I thought that film, I really liked that film. It's, it's a film that divides people I now know, but I thought it was amazing. And um, I didn't want to be the, the answer to Selma by somehow boosting LBJ and, and denig- you know, lowering somehow MLK. And so I, I just had some catastrophic thinking of, that, I, that we, we could do it we could do it poorly and really, really get killed for it. So I held out to, you know, we went through a lot of names to play it. And when Anthony, when I met Anthony, I saw a charisma and a uh, a strength and a, um, I don't know, just something that I, nobody else that we'd considered quite had. And I also knew he was committed to taking the chance. He'd been asked to play MLK. There was enough resemblance that he'd been asked before and always turned it down. And he felt like he finally maybe had enough experience. But more importantly, he liked the writing. He thought the writing of King was strong, but not, not stereotypical, not just the public iconic King. And that was the choice he made, which, which did surprise me. He went for... And I had seen many interviews with Dr. King where he wasn't the the larger-than-life minister-turned-civil-rights leader who could deliver those beautiful, amazing uh, speeches. In private and in some of the interviews we saw, he was very calm and very strong and and not didn't didn't orate, you know, obviously in all the... And, and Anthony said, I'm going to show that. I'm going to show the, the more of the private king and the strong uh, king who's just thoughtful and and definitely besieged by his own peers you know from the from the left by Stokely Carmichael and Robert Moses Robert Moses is I recommend learning about Robert Moses that guy's amazing uh and from the right in within his group by um uh the NAACP uh you know who were who were nervous that he was going to you know so that 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 Deliberator, that moderator in those private meetings seemed really interesting to me and to Anthony. And, I, and he, he, I just thought he did a beautiful job. You know, it was, it was very subdued, and probably people were expecting, might expect more of the the, the larger than life king. But it, it was, I really liked the humanity in it. I guess is the way I would say it. Now you mentioned Dick Russell. Uh, I, I found the father-son relationship fascinating. Uh, in the great line, I'm coming for you, Dick. I love you like more than my own daddy, but if you get in my way, I'll crush you. Uh, when, you write, when you see something like that, how do you handle it emotionally? Because you make it very emotionally dramatic. You're trying to be historical accurate. Yeah. How do you balance that? Because it's really yeah. the heart of their relationship. Yeah. Um, and it was almost, it's so, uh, you know, in life, it's hard to imagine that something could be so theatrical in real life, that, that it seems so Shakespearean, so much like a stage moment. 
But it really happened that way. He was uh, Russell's protege for many years and had actually under Russell uh, voted against civil rights legislation for years because he was such a product of the Southern Caucus, you know, and all those Dixiecrats had gotten so, uh, were so hunkered down and defensive about all the civil rights movements, and Johnson had gone along with that for quite a while. And by 57, he finally passed the civil rights bill. He himself had helped be on the right side of it, but it was toothless. It was, it was a weak bill. He did another one in 60, and, and then for him to take it on in 64, you know, against his his the guy who taught him a lot of what he knew and and to take on the whole southern caucus uh, and we needed we just needed somebody with the gravity i mean dick russell was a legend their their big congressional office building is called the russell building you know for he was he was a legendary uh legislator and even though he was a racist and a segregationist he still had you know, so much uh, power because just his own, his own, uh, I guess, charisma and experience, and having the whole Southern Caucus, Southern, uh, all the Southern Dixiecrats behind him. So it was uh, emotional. It was it was father son. It was political and emotional simultaneously. So when he crossed him, you know, it was like you know. The, the, Killing the father, you know, killing what, killing the relationship at least, and it really happened that way. So I was, we just tried to be faithful to it and take take these two great actors and see what they would do against each other. And I, I have Frank Langella is, he's like being around, you know, uh, I don't know, like someone that someone that you've grown up with, like an Olivier or a, you know, just a, just a. Titan, he said Titan, you know, and so even Brian was like, "Wow!" And so, so I, I, that was again, it was extremely fortuitous that we had those two guys in that level of real dramatic conflict. And we touched a little about Lady Bird. I mean, he devastates her by throwing her out of the office, you know, and she's crying. Yeah. But she's also some of the only one that can actually get to him sometimes. Yeah. Like at the end of the movie, he says to you know, "I'm not throwing the chief of staff under the bus." Yeah, yeah, yeah. She you know. got some. Well, that and two interesting things about that. One in the play. Did anybody see the play here? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, there. If you remember, Lady Bird was kind of a doormat in the play. She was not strong at all. I mean, she's not that strong in the film either. But it seems, you know, at least she's she's, you know, a formidable person. And it was the bit of. It was the one uh, criticism Shank and, and, and the play got was from the LBJ people. They had cooperated with the LBJ library people, the whole family. And everybody thought two things, that, that, um, that he swore too much. <laughs> they, and that happens in all, you know, I remember John McCain's people said, he never swears. Well, we had, we had you know, families don't like to see their, their patriarchs as swearers, as cursors. So, but so they toned down the f words a little bit, uh, you know, not not a lot, uh, and that Ladybird was never that much of a doormat, right? So Schenken heard that and did more research, and we went to the LBJ library, and I heard a tape the night Walter Jenkins was arrested, or the morning when when Johnson found out about it. It was actually a week later, but when Johnson found out about it, he. Lady Bird and he talked on the phone and all of Johnson's calls were recorded at that time. You know, he had this, he did have the secret thing. And in fact, he convinced Nixon to record all his phone calls, even though Nixon <laughs> didn't want out? to. Otherwise, Nixon wouldn't have had to resign. Um, so we heard all these calls and one of the most amazing calls was this call where that conversation actually happened on the phone, not, not where we staged it, where... She said, we have to help him. And he said, we can't. He, 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 it's going to ruin us, you know, this close to the election. And she said, I don't care. We're going to help him. And he said, Lady Bird, you've got to talk to the lawyer. She was, I hear you. I know you think you have to do this, but we're going to help him. And she went out from, we had at one point the idea of shooting the scene, but she went out after that and delivered a public statement backing him up, you know. Uh, and it was... It was amazing that she, she would do it, I, I, that she did that. And I thought, if we could just get a really strong actress, and that's why I went so hard for Melissa Leo, that even though she's playing a somewhat, um, not, not, what's the right word, uh, 
you know, a cooperative wife. She was somewhat compliant to his bullying. But that because the strength was there, and real Ladybird was a really strong woman. She got an, an incredible uh, amount of stuff accomplished. She was one of the first first ladies that had a full staff. She had a whole agenda. She was a, and she went, and we had to cut the scene where she was doing that whistle stop tour you saw in the stills. We had a scene where she was giving a speech from the back of a train and being yelled at and heckled by the racists. Uh, she was amazing, right? So. But that, that story of Walter Jenkins, the guy who was caught in the bathroom, uh, you know, is such a powerful story. And her relationship with him was really meaningful to me because that showed that she was willing on certain things at that level of, you know, immorality not to sell out her friend. And Johnson loved him, too. I mean, he loved, yeah, totally I mean, loved him. You're like a son. He was with him like... since 38. He was with <laughs> him since his first congressional race. Yeah. His Texas aide, chief of staff, he wasn't called the chief of staff. They didn't really have that position in his White House. But he was the chief of staff. And nobody knew. And the sad, the sad story is even the Johnson people to this day uh, like the story, let's put it this way, they like the story that he was so that he wasn't really gay. That he had, that he was so stressed that he had a an episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, oh, this poor man. Can you know? Imagine having to have that closeted life, you know, a- around people who just didn't want to go there, you know. But he, at the end, he. You, whatever I, I would actually like to know more about him if I if I could find more information. I've looked for information for what happened to him after he did go back to Austin. He be, he went back to being an accountant, which was his kind of side gig the whole time he was there. Stayed with his family and LBJ when he retired reunited with Walter Jenkins and they hung out. You know, so uh, it's a it's a really compelling story. They they made a TV a TV movie about him, but they changed all the names and did it a kind of Romana Clef. In the 70s, about Walter Jenkins, but now I'd like to do a, a real life story because his that what a powerful and you know tragic story that is too. Bill Moyers said about Walter Jenkins, if he hadn't been fired, Vietnam might have never happened. Oh. Isn't that amazing? He was such a close confidant. He was the bulwark. He could have been the the help to go against the generals. That Johnson lost when he lost. And he had the power to talk Johnson he, out of things. He was like one of the he, only he people who Johnson listened to. Exactly. And respected. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, he was, you know, yeah. So that, that just, that's, that was mind blowing. Moyers is an amazing guy to get to talk to. That was one of the. So you have some racism in this film, uh, which is obviously a character himself. Uh, a few lines, you have to shop with them, eat with them, and work with them. And who are, he, who are we to tell the owner of a cafe? to tell them who we can serve, who they can yeah. serve. Yeah. Ironic. That's going on still in some laws. <laughs> well, How do you work uh, with these actors to portray this level of discrimination that still persists yeah. even today? And you have, you have a policeman killing a black kid. You know? you have, it's, there's so much of it that is, it's, it's, you can't believe that it happened then and you can't believe it's still happening. It was, it was traumatic, you know, frankly, to... And these actors, as all good actors know, you can't play the character judging the character at the same time. You have to lose yourself in the thing and convince yourself as the, act, as the, as the real person did that there's a reason for this and there's you know, all the mythology, the terrible mythology of it. They had to internalize that. And again, you, if you've cast great actors who are willing to go there and not... Uh, sugarcoat it or water it down but play it for its its dark its dark commitment its dark uh, kind of you know uh, inhuman thing you like the real but but anyway so that we just got great actors you know the, the all those guys who played Jim the Jim Easton guy and uh, all those actors were so good and um, I didn't want them to seem like cartoons it's almost impossible not to seem a little cartoonish because it's just such delusional thinking that you you just going oh my god these are but that was real those people those speeches almost all those speeches were straight from the transcripts of their their uh, talks on the floor of congress in those days the dixiecrats were that bold and they didn't have c-span so i think they they could be quoted (laughs) but they weren't shown standing up saying horrible racist things which might have given them more 
you know, more a sense of invincibility in those situations. And they were speaking, you know, just like people today can speak to that, uh, vic- that sort of people who feel victimized, who feel like they're being, they're under attack from the people who aren't in their tribe or whatever. Like they're, that they knew how to get votes by doing that. So uh, it's not, it's an old thing to play to the, uh, to the racist fear-based, hate-based thing. It, it always I think it's a great moment them. in the, the club, the center, whatever the centers yeah. are hanging out. They're, tra- they're saying such horrible racist things and they turn to the African-American way, oh, thank you. Yeah. Like, well, and they, like go, they, re- they liked him, but they didn't understand. They were they, just saying this right in front yeah, of him. But they go quiet. They're kind of cowardly because they don't want him to overhear them. Like, right. you know, that, and that's actually, you know, they really didn't worry about those guys overhearing him. And I checked to make sure. I said, would an African-American be... The butler in the... Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we did all this research. Like, no, they would... In a racist club like that, they would have African-American, you know, serving them. Um, and I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it was uh, ex- you know, astonishing. And then you'd go outside and go, oh, right, it's, it's still happening. There's, all of these issues are still issues. And it's uh, depressing. <laughs> you know, it's depressing that it hasn't changed more. I do want to ask you a little about the scene, obviously, the mis- where the three men were murdered. Uh, it is said today it happens almost weekly. Yeah. Uh, but for you, what, how did you approach that sequence? Because it, 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 it really did inflame everything in, yeah. at the time. Yeah. It was, um, it was a bit of a challenge to figure out the right way to do it because in the play, it was a huge set piece. You know, um, they had... They were the funeral and the, the uncovering of the body was a big deal in the play, and I, you know, I just thought it might be too. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. It just seemed like we might. It might seem gratuitously graphic if we did it the wrong way. We did show the stills, the very graphic, horrible stills. Those are the real life stills, um, but it seemed right to play them as human beings more I think when you just show corpses and it's too easy to dehumanize them not see them as the real people so but it wasn't the story wasn't about them so I didn't get you didn't get to know them but it you did find you did realize that it was a major turning point and a major problem for Johnson you know he had been trying to get Dr. King to pull back some of the aggressive uh, voter registration stuff to pull back some of the um you know, protests at the time, and and he knew that there might be a, a kind of inflaming of of passions on both sides that would hurt him in the election. Um, so, and that he has to be that calculating. But he actually really, truly did have compassion for what was for them and for what was going on. So he's that's a, the curse of a politician, which I find a me you know just tough to. I would never want to be one for this reason to have to. Think about all the political implications while you're also connecting to people in a. Uh, well, even the great that when Fanny's telling her story about how yeah. she's beaten, oh, and he's just worried about. That really happened. Yeah. He actually, you know, faked that whole press conference to get the cameras off her, even though one could argue he completely sympathized with her cause. He knew she was, if she talked uh, the Southern, you know, contingent at that convention to to start in cor- pulling black people into the thing that they were they were over they that the backlash would be so- like he actually walked out there and said uh, nothing i got nothing i came i announced a press conference <laughs> but i got nothing to tell you when i have a vice presidential candidate i'll let you know it's like whoa yeah any questions yeah uh all right so what question is did you have? You knew you had to use the, uh, the the classic political ad with the atomic bomb. Yeah. And did you ever dream that it would come back that we'd be afraid of a candidate uh, using I, the button? I well, I, you know, I think we were already. I mean, I didn't see that coming. But what I, what I for sure didn't see coming is the little girl who was in the film is now part of the Clinton yep. campaign, and they've done an <laughs> ad. And I, I think we actually might have helped bring that back. You know, that whole. I did back by just re-portraying that amazing, that amazing commercial. So yeah, I didn't see that coming. I mean, I, listen, I, I had no idea how relevant this film was going to be. <laughs> Again, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's not good that these films aren't making a big enough impact. Since can't, I can't believe that we're where we are. I thought these films were going to have some, you know, some actual. 
impact. Well, ironically, you know, there are currently in the platform, I don't, I don't mean to get too political, but I can't help it. Uh, they're trying to roll back three critical Johnson initiatives. Currently, the Republican Party, they're trying to roll back his saying that nonprofits could use you know, tax-free funds to mm. promote their candidate in church. He uh-huh. want the, you know, the Trump is trying to roll back the uh, Johnson saying you can't, there's no litmus test. Right, right. You know, for you, you have to allow immigrants in without yeah, with yeah, the country yeah. origin, and of course the voting rights. Well, so, the voting rights one is the most excruciating, just because I haven't worked on the recount thing, and just seeing the the, the entire voting rights thing, the the, the uh, approval process for any electoral stuff that might be perceived as racist in the South. I mean, it's happening. They're they're in North Carolina. They're shutting down all the voting early voting. You know, they're they're definitely intimidating voters uh it's again it's that's i don't know i guess we just have to keep trying to make films that you know raise the questions and and hope that it would it, you know maybe maybe it would be even worse if we weren't getting people to talk about these issues uh the last scene between lyndon johnson and dick russell dick is in a, alone in the kitchen yeah and you know and their relationship is over and yeah. everything how did you approach that because that is johnson's at the highest note ever and dick his best friend yeah. or his mentors at the lowest note. well again great actors have great ideas it was uh, um frank langella had done the research on senator russell and remembered reading that he lived alone and he cooked his own meals uh-huh. and he did not live you know in a, in a live large you know he had a small apartment and he'd actually pitched that scene when i cast him i don't think it was in the original script um, and or it was in a different it was in a different structure I can't remember but it was definitely not that a lot of that came from just talking with Frank in the rehearsals we have a two week period where we just sit and kick ideas around and talk things through and um, so once I saw what he was up to and then we we you know had this whole great uh, we had a really great production designer and who just you know set that up to just feel exactly as lonely and sad as it was. Then I had this idea of um, kind of pushing in on Brian at the party and kind of as he becomes increasingly aware that that's over, this this father-son thing, that he won't have Frank to turn, to, uh, Senator Russell to turn to anymore as a, <clears throat> as a colleague and a supporter, and then pulling back slowly on on Langella as you realize he's he's alone and he's now fully isolated himself by being on the wrong side of history. He's truly on the wrong side of history, and he knows that now. And he wasn't as much of a, a raving racist as those other guys from Mississippi and everywhere else, but he was a segregationist, so he wasn't going to be able to run from that. He, uh, he definitely was... He definitely believed that separate, you know, and unequal was better than integrated. And let's remember, I mean, he was right that uh, Democrats will lose the South. Oh yeah, yeah and he he definitely was, but he also, you know, uh, the the whole all the Dixiecrats went to the Republican Party, and suddenly the there was a much clearer left right, you know, division represented by the two parties. Up until then, there had been really staunch racist conservative people who were Democrats. Uh, people don't remember that, but it was the Democratic Party was run by the racists for the longest time. Um, and once Johnson turned on them and Goldwater had sort of set up his more right thing, they, they started drifting and, and the, the Republican Party was far more right wing from then on. And the, the Democratic Party was far more consistently left from that point forward. Okay, so we end our show with the same question, which we hit you with last year. Yeah. So we'll see if you come up with a different answer. Oh. Uh, the question about, can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had possibly growing up or even later in life that was very special for you? What did I say last time? Wasn't you told the Borat story with your dad. Yeah, that was, wow, that was, um, um, uh, any movie theater, well, did I talk about drive-ins at the time? No, no. Oh, okay. Most of my movie, exp- well, there's two I could do. Mm, tempted. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you two really quick because I can't make up my mind. The first, the, most of the films I saw were in the back of a station wagon. My my parents had four kids, no money, and we just went. We never saw movies anywhere except at the drive-in in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and 
my dad loved spy movies, so we watched Armand Flint, uh, Matt Helm movies, James Bond movies. My dad worked for the defense industry uh, for uh, Sandy Laboratories, and he thought of himself as a spy. He was really just a... Dra- he's, he's the Robert De Niro character in Meet the Parents. He oh. thought of himself as being... <laughs> The, him and you know uh, Reagan having broken the back of the Russian bear, as he always put. <laughs> but he was just a guy drawing pictures of the casings that held the experiments that the bombs would. He he worked underground in the test sites sometimes, and they had tubes that would go off from the bomb, sh- the nuclear bombs that would go off, and he had little experiments installed, and, and that was his job. But it was so top secret. And he had a top secret clearance that he thought he was James Bond. So we would just go and watch these movies. And he, anyway, so that, so that was, I think that couldn't have hurt when I started doing Austin Powers. And then the only other thing was, I, when I went to uh, Stanford, uh, I was pre-law econ major. And I got, I had to work my way through school. So I had work-study jobs. And one of my jobs was um, uh, running the film series uh, that was a Sunday night flicks. It was called at a huge auditorium, like 1,400 people. It, every night would start with a paper airplane contest the, from the balcony. People would throw <laughs> paper airplanes, and any any um, plane that could hit the screen got a free ticket for the next the next thing. <laughs> and we screened um, two movies that changed my life: Eraserhead uh-huh. and Annie Hall. <laughs> uh, and both were about dysfunction. Getting back to uh, and I was dysfunctional uh, in, in many, many ways, but especially uh, with relationships. And I was very self-loathing and miserable about it until I saw those two movies that taught me that dysfunction can be turned into art. <laughs> and that's, that's when I decided to not be a lawyer and I went to film school instead. There you go. Well, you know, we read about history in the books, but there's nothing like seeing it dramatically told that actually emotionally connect us to a time. Because, like, for example, many of these students don't remember, you know, they're not going to remember LBJ, or, but they well, can feel they it. They weren't alive. They weren't alive. <laughs> but, no, they see it, they're interested, they read about yeah. it. But seeing it tonight was really special. Thank you. So I want to thank you for connecting us to the past. At the same time, you can make Austin Powers movies again. Uh, you can make us laugh. Or maybe a Donald Trump movie. I have. There might be a comedic <laughs> Donald Trump movie to come. So thank you. Thank you for thank you so your interest. For and thanks for your question. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.